Hi, welcome to Totem Talks. I'm Helen Fruin. I'm Mark Smith. And today we are talking about unconscious bias, which is particularly important right now with the increased awareness around Black Lives Matter. Uh, although something we've been talking about for a very long time, interesting perhaps today to look at how that ties into Black Lives Matter. Going to be an interesting discussion, I think. Hmm. I'm actually quite excited about this one. And I think we have, we've taken different paths yes. to educating ourselves over the last four to six weeks and we've arrived in a very similar place. So I am, I am, I'm very looking forward to this conversation too. Very good. Would you like to kick off in terms of your experience with racism, your views on anti-racism, how you've come to whatever conclusions you're at right now? Ooh, in... So I think for context, it's important to for me to say that I grew up in a very multicultural environment. So I was raised on a council estate in Derby, which is in the centre of the UK for all of those who drive past it on the M1. <laughs> uh, it was a, a nice mix. Uh, it was 30-30-30 split between Asian communities, black communities and white communities. Um, and then there were distinct groups even within that. So there was a, a strong Muslim presence within Derby and also a Sikh presence too. So it was, uh, my experience of race at school was obviously I was aware of it because you, you couldn't help but be aware of it. Um, and so when I moved out into the wider world and there were communities where there were only one or two black people present. I, I it boggled my mind. It was like literally traveling back in time to the fifties. It was, it was really quite peculiar. And so I've developed um, some quite different views mm. on race. So what I'm hearing from a lot of people in the media at the moment, um, and it's not to say that I haven't enjoyed white privilege. I think I have the last six weeks have really challenged my view of what, my skin color has has given me and I think at, at times I've almost consciously taken advantage of that I remember quite clearly taking advantage of my white teachers uh she gave me a little bit more grace interesting than some of the other kids in my class and I've right. it's only in the last six weeks that that thought has popped into my head and I've really been able to go back in time and oh yeah mm. oh I did and I still do um yeah, so so my that that that's the context of where I'm coming from, um, and I I'd be actually really fascinated if there is somebody from Derby Moor Community School listening right <laughs> now. My memory is that it was quite a, a well mixed school in terms of cultural and ethnic diversity. I would love to, if someone is listening, get in touch and tell me what your experience was because I think my perception is wrong, and without any actual statistics, I can't I can't guarantee that. So yeah, what about you? Uh, so I would be one of those examples that you talked about from the 1950s, where my school of about 500 kids, I remember one black kid and one kid who was British by all measures, uh, but his grandparents were from China. So he still had uh, the appearance of being Chinese and certainly got teased at school for that because he mm. was the only kid that looked like him in the school. So I, yeah, I was one of those from the 1950s in this very white environment. And I remember when uh, a friend of mine, who's a Jamaican guy came to stay. And I think it was about the second day in this town that I'd grown up in. And he said, I feel really uncomfortable here because I've only seen one other black person in the town. Mm. And I was really shocked because I'd never noticed it. 
And one of the things that's really stood out for me powerfully in the past few weeks of educating myself about white privilege is that the whole point of privilege is that you don't notice it. Yeah. I don't notice, I don't walk around town going, oh gosh, this would be quite difficult to navigate right now if I was a wheelchair user. You don't notice what you don't notice. And that's the privilege of being a non-wheelchair user. Uh, So I think there's something fascinating here about noticing those differences. Yeah, and I think that's that links nicely to the unconscious bias thing. Right. I think what's been really interesting over the last six weeks for me is there has there, there is such a movement now, and it feels very differently to how the Black, the Black Lives Matter movement was before. And I'm actually quite excited, and I think we are now starting to talk about the unconscious prejudices that we have and we're getting comfortable talking about this i'm happy to share that i have an unconscious bias towards lager drinkers so i don't want to be glib about this but um i don't like lager and i think people who drink lager have not got proper taste buds (laughs) and i extend that outwards and it's 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 i've realized in the last six weeks that my unconscious is actually driving a lot of the the views that I have and I'm 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 actually quite worried. <laughs> but the thing is with this conversation and hopefully what people will be able to take away from today is to just be able to consciously challenge every kind of uh, every time you pull that face, uh, just just think about why you've thought that. Right. Because it could be built on years, in fact, of of influence from your childhood from early adulthood and what is it what other actions is it driving and it so it's i I, i'm i love unconscious bias i'm getting really interested by it um yeah and i think it's fascinating when i look at our work because we've talked about unconscious bias in business for the 10 years in Mm. totem uh, and certainly previous to that in other organizations talking about objective recruitment being less subjective in interviews so that conversation has been a part of my career certainly for 20 years so what's different now i think what's interesting is to help people make the link between what they're seeing in the news about black lives matter and their own unconscious biases because there's a tendency or what i'm finding in conversations with people is there's a tendency to separate out that happening over there police brutality i can't do anything about that and me over here in my workplace those things are two completely unrelated concepts Mm -hmm. and actually when you start talking about having a bias against lager drinkers or as i had recently in a collaboration online workshop talking about the fact that we make judgments about other departments so oh you you don't want to go to finance they always just say no so there's Mm. no point collaborating with finance and legal let's face it they're always just the red tape so you don't want to involve legal and having this conversation with a client group about their unconscious biases one of them then pointed out gosh this sounds really relevant to black lives matter and so I, that's what I'm really enjoying at the moment. And like you, I'm excited by this increase in awareness of all of this because it brings about a catalyst for change. It makes this an opportunity for us to really change things. It does. I would expect there to be a bit of a pushback from our audience in terms of how long it's taken us to respond to the Black Lives Matter. I think for me personally and for the company, it's been a time for reflection, for learning, 
and for us to want to respond from a, a, a position of strength, uh, from knowledge. I think there's a lot of people at the moment who are talking about experiences we either don't understand or can't relate to. And that doesn't mean that those perspectives aren't correct. I imagine they are. But we want to respond from a place of, of like I say, strength and knowledge and certainty. And where, where can we actually help? We don't, I don't think, and I don't speak for Totem on this one, I don't think that posting a picture of a black square is particularly helpful. I think what is helpful is me as a, as a business manager and a business leader saying, this is my company's ethos now. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to change the world. And I think that's what it's taken this amount of time to come to. And there's been a personal journey on that as well, mm. as well as a, a company journey. So, um, yeah, really just getting into finding the the voices, um, and the the thought leaders, the people with the experience who um, I think should be leading and shaping the debate mm. around all of this. So. And what's interesting for me on that as well about finding those voices and involving those voices. So I've been very conscious recently when I've been asked to run sessions on unconscious bias. Why why me? Actually, who who do I know who is black who could run that session with all of the science behind it that I can do with an added thing of, as you say, an experience that I can't relate to, that I can't give as a personal experience. Uh, and one of the things that struck me, again, as, as you describe, their experience isn't mine. And a lady replied to me recently to say, um, I do need to manage myself because talking about race for me is tiring. It's not tiring for me. It's historically been something I do maybe weekly as part of my job. Now it's become a daily passion because mm. I've certainly taken much more of an interest in this in the past few weeks. And it's something I'm excited about. I'm angry about. I'm excited about it. I don't find it tiring. When you experience racism hour in, hour out, minute in, minute out, it's really tiring to talk about that experience and to talk about the hurt in that. And so I think there's a bit of a, a challenge we're facing as a company is how to involve more of those voices when those people are feeling tired mm. and how to support them as well. I think there's a, a difficult challenge there. Yeah. So let's get into the meat of the show. The show is titled Unconscious Bias. What is unconscious bias? Great question. Yes. So unconscious bias is a very broad term. You know, we tend when we talk about unconscious bias in recruitment, which is where most people have heard it referenced, we tend to think about the fact that uh, I'm a white woman, therefore I might want to recruit other white women. Uh, you're a white man, you might want to recruit other white men. Or you might find that they are Derby County football fans, and so you... Perhaps, there are two of us. There you go. Perhaps you challenge them for that. Perhaps you feel an affinity with them. Uh, I might find that someone has painted their nails and think, oh, look, I like painting my nails too. We've got something in common. So unconscious bias is often limited to the way in which we like people like us when we are recruiting or in our friendships. But it's huge, far more broad than that. It's actually about the reference to how we make 95% of our decisions unconsciously. We have an unconscious, something we are not aware of, bias, tendency to make decisions quickly based on emotion, past experience, values, things, you know, to your point about lager drinkers, maybe you had a bad experience with someone drinking lager 20 years ago 
Mm. And over 20 years, that's shaped itself into all of these beliefs about people who drink lager, which is ridiculous. And yet that's how our brains work. And so when we acknowledge that so much of our decision making, tens of thousands of decisions every day, we're not really aware of, then of course it makes sense that some of those decisions we may want to challenge. We may want to bring into our awareness and say, as you've pointed out, when you make the face or noise of, mm, I don't like those kind of people. What do you mean by those kind of people? And where has that judgment come from? I think one of the things that we should talk about in unconscious bias is actually its role evolutionary as as we've developed as a species. There is an important use for affinity bias in evolution, and that is to build a sense of team, to a tribe, like, to build a tribe, to to defend one another vigorously, to cast out those who might be ill or sick or who might bring um, pain upon the tribe. So an affinity bias is useful from that perspective. It's also very useful from a cognitive load perspective. So when I get out of bed in the morning, I go to the coffee machine and I put my socks on. I have not thought about that at all. If I had to think about everything I did, my head would literally explode. So even now, just if you're watching on camera, I'm moving my hands around, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. If I had to think about those individual things, my, my prefrontal cortex would be absolutely massive. It's not, it hasn't got the capability to manage all of those things. So it devolves that responsibility to my subconscious, my unconscious. Yep. And what's fascinating is when you, you do have the ability to shine a light in your unconscious and it's like a big echoey cave and you can go, ooh, what's <laughs> Hello? down there? Hello. <laughs> and occasionally you get an echo back and you can actually see where that echo has come from. And you, you, we speak to my bias towards lager drinkers. I have an affinity bias towards strong, competent women. And when I look back at my time at Totem, we've only ever employed women, which I find fascinating. Whenever I'm looking on YouTube for information about a topic, I stay and listen to strong powerful women who speak eloquently who've clearly researched this and are passionate it's the passion as well mm. um and i found that fascinating that when i look back over my life i'm like well where has that come from and i'm still struggling with that i mean that, that's mm. a, that's a, a, a fair few therapy sessions in there <laughs> for me probably and actually i'd like to press pause there because i think sometimes where has that come from can be unhelpful. Okay. Because if we spend a lot of time going, yes, why is it that I like strong, competent women? And why is it that I don't like lager drinkers? By really justifying our belief, oh. we can actually make it deeper. Absolutely. And then, so we further the unconscious bias. So you're never going to recruit any men. And if they're lager drinkers, they've got no chance. Yeah. So actually, you're more of a proponent there of the behavioral therapy as opposed to the cognitive behavioral therapy. The thing that says, I've noticed that I've got this tendency to only recruit strong, competent women. Why don't I look at strong, competent men as well? I don't trust men. That's probably what <laughs> that's it is. That's therapy yeah, session. There we go. That's, that's my <laughs> therapy session in a nutshell. Thank you very much. You don't trust men. I don't trust men. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, there's another podcast in <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or we can just record my therapy session. I think. <laughs> <laughs> One of the two.
Uh, speaking of strong, competent women, you've talked to me about someone you found online who's got a lot of interesting stuff to say on this subject. Tell us about her. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, in, in my travels, I have come across uh, Laura Morgan Roberts, who's a, a doctor, I believe, professor at um, Virginia, Virginia Darden Business School. Um, and she has been speaking to this point about Black Lives Matter for a long time. But sure. She, she's actually a psychologist. Um, she's been um, focused on uh, race and inclusion and diversity for, for quite a while. She's written a very good book. Uh, let me just find it. It's uh, Race, Work and Leadership. And it was the leadership thing that, that caught me. Mm. Um, I am really struggling for leadership on this. I just want somebody or a group of people to stand up and say, this is the direction we need to go in. This is what we need to do. And that is not happening at a government level, either nationally or internationally. In fact, they, they seem to be doing the exact opposite of that. There are too many voices on social media all clamoring for attention. So I, I have very little trust there. So I've surprisingly gone back towards the academic view and to just try and find someone who's been researching this and who knows her stuff. And as I mentioned earlier, she's also a very strong, capable competent woman um and I, and I like watching her stuff so um that's where i've been at the moment um i think um she's got a lot of good stuff to say so i'll put lots of links great um, to her stuff in the in the stuff below and share with us a few highlights what is it that's really stood out for you um speaking on a podcast or an interview about six or seven days ago and she linked the 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 move the, the black lives matter movement this time um and it's relative success with the pandemic mm. and I, I thought well, how have you connected those two mm. dots that's amazing and what she spoke about was that during this pandemic on a global scale almost everybody and we're talking billions of people have experienced um, some form of lockdown they have had their privileges taken away they've had their pleasures taken away they have been told no on a huge scale um, not only that, we've had fear and fear of others introduced into our lives. So if, if we walk out the streets at the moment or get in the UK, certainly mid-June, if you get on public transport without a face mask, it's it's I'm not sure if it's a crime or not, but you, you're not allowed to. So whenever you see someone out and about without a face mask on, you do have a bit of apprehension. You do want to keep your distance. Um, and so for the first time, Everybody has experienced a lack of a lack of privilege and fear of other people. And she said that that is a permanent state of existence for many black, Asian and minority ethnic people. And now white people are in a similar place. I mean, I'm, she didn't say that exactly, but... Sure, but there's a sense of uh, some shared vague, yeah. tiny shared experience. A very, yes. But there is a shared sense of experience yes. there. And... For, for 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 the things to happen that have happened mm. um it's almost like it's it's now everybody gets it mm. to some degree even even, even a, tiny even point a tiny point yeah people are starting to understand it viscerally within themselves what yeah. it must be like and it's that that i think is driving the momentum of the moment and um I think that's why this mm. this feels very different i think it's interesting for me personally i was coming more into uh, I guess an interest in racism or want to understand more about it in the weeks before George Floyd 
because of the, I don't know, what do you call it? The, the racist nature of COVID-19. Mm. Why is it that certain groups are being worse affected by this virus than others? It doesn't make any sense. And so I was reading about how systemic racism might have led to that, mm. how housing might have led to that, poverty might have led to that. And so I was already kind of in that space because of the pandemic. And then George Floyd just kind of pushed that even further. So that's been my personal experience of how this, uh, as you say, this time has been more poignant for me to go, I really need to wake up and listen here. Mm. I guess it might be interesting right now to talk about how we're using our increased awareness of this in our business. What does that mean for you? So I'm an engineer and I like I like order and I like precision and I also like steps, you know, nicely laid out steps to victory. And I think what I've struggled to find is how can we create business systems that promote diversity as opposed to what we have now, which is a passive acknowledgement of the importance of diversity. So you know, I think about seven days ago, I jumped onto some of our employment contracts just to have a quick peek about what we actually say. And we say, obviously, we promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Well, that's, and then there's a full stop. And that's it. That's and, it. And if you look at anybody else's employment contract, that's it. That's all it's going to say. There's no, um, there's no pressure for you to actually be anti-racist. And that's what has caught me off guard. It's not, it's no longer good enough to just be I'm not racist. Yeah. That's that's a cop out, actually, mate. Um, you need to be proactively challenging this as as much as you can be. You need to be proactively um, inclusive. How can you demonstrate that proactivity? And for me, as an engineer, and for me, who's who's very comfortable sort of designing the behavioural indicators you might look at in a, a recruitment environment or in a in a workplace setting. That's really going to be my focus for the next couple of weeks, I think, is to just really get my head around how can we encourage people to do something as opposed to encourage them not to do something, if that right. makes sense. Yes. So, you know, at, at Toyota... Instead of don't be racist. Yeah, be not racist. <laughs> yeah, be anti-racist. Be anti-racist, yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, at Toyota, the, it was really interesting uh, as a cultural experience because that you were mandated to give five good ideas for improvement within the factory environment every month and if you didn't you wouldn't get a bonus right and at first everybody grudgingly was like oh i've got to do me and you would see some people who would just turn up and oh i've not done me five and they just quickly write down any nonsense but after a while you would see a good 80 to 90 percent of the population within toyota saw their ideas being implemented they saw the power of the change that toyota were asking them to make and then the five ideas went from being this mandatory kind of tick box exercise to actually this has empowered me. This has made my job better. This has made that person's job better. And the ball started to roll and it snowballed. Such a powerful example because when you talk about making a difference in diversity and inclusion, the automatic response is that's tokenism. It's just tick boxing. Yeah. So when you think of it as business improvements, it works. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where I want to spend the next little time is just actually how would I encourage this to go from being a mandated tick box ex exercise to something that became an emotional kind of mm. oh, 
Brilliant. And just to mention our education on where that's coming from. So my job right now is to read the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. We'll put links to all these books below. You're reading Laura's book. Race, Work and Leadership. And we've also got the support of our LinkedIn network to guide us on some of these things as well. If you've got other suggestions on books we could be reading to educate this, please do let us know. Absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. And I guess for me right now in business, where I feel challenged is to bring unconscious bias more into everything. So I think I've only ever mentioned unconscious bias in a recruitment workshop, how to interview effectively, how to run an assessment center objectively, how to avoid subjective interviews, blah, blah, blah. Last week, I introduced unconscious bias into a collaboration workshop. Mm. Next week, I'm putting it into a project management workshop. And the week after that, just trying to think, oh, it's building relationships. I would never think of putting unconscious bias as a topic into those sessions. And what I've realized now is that that's where I have power, opportunity, expertise, responsibility to just start more conversations about this and bypass the defensiveness that a lot of white people get talking about race by introducing something that feels safer first. Mm -hmm. Like, as I say, this point about, you know, the legal department are like this, the HR department are like this, everybody gets that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't then take long for someone to say, maybe then I might be a bit racist as well. Yeah. Let's explore that. Let's acknowledge how we can start to challenge that. Yeah. And I think the most important word I've heard in the last 30 minutes of recording is responsibility. We have a responsibility to do something and we have an opportunity and the power to do it. It's important that we take responsibility. We should seize the moment. So thank you for listening, everybody. We know that this is a it's an important conversation to be had between me and Helen, just as as managers of a business it's an important conversation for us all to be having over the next hopefully decades i don't want this to just dry up and fizzle out on twitter this is really really important on that really heavy note (laughs) just have a great day enjoy the sunshine if it's sunny where you're at and we will catch you next week thank you